Welcome to Reconciling Grace, a program where church leaders discuss various topics from the Bible. During the discussions, there may or may not always be agreement from every panel member on every point, but there is full agreement on the fact that the way to God the Father is through the reconciling grace of Jesus Christ. And the reconciling grace of Jesus Christ is wonderful. This is Pete Vecchi, and it's my privilege to be with you today for another episode of Reconciling Grace. I'm one of the associate pastors at West Carrollton Church of the Nazarene. Joining me today is Steve Wilson, Christian author with a Master of Divinity from United Theological Seminary, Rich Harmon, who is a licensed minister at West Carrollton Church of the Nazarene, and Mick Wells, who's one of the co-hosts of the Cross Connection radio program and also a songwriter. Gentlemen, it's good to have you with us today. In uh, one of our previous episodes, in fact, probably in a couple of previous episodes now, we've talked about prayer, and there's just so much good stuff about prayer. We thought we'd uh, do another program on it. And today, I think that uh, it's Steve Wilson who has some... ideas that he wanted to kind of bring out about prayer. So I'm going to kind of throw things over to Steve and just kind of let you uh, ask the questions and tell us what's on your mind today. Fantastic. Uh, Greetings, everyone. When we talk about prayer, I thought we'd go back to the beginning. And as far as I can tell, the first prayer is referenced in Genesis 4.26. says that, Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. Now, Seth is uh, one of the children of Adam and Eve. you got Adam and Eve, then Cain and Abel, and then the next son that's mentioned is Seth. It says, Seth had a son named Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. At that time, they began to call on the name of the Lord. And I'm wondering, what does that verse mean? What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? What does it mean that it was at that time that they started to do so? What do you guys think? I think that uh, when you recognize how mankind began, uh, we find out that the first person ever born was a murderer. So we have evil on the scene (laughs) right off the bat in mankind. Um... So I've always heard that uh, my dad termed the godly line of Seth. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's probably a way you could trace him to Noah and the remnant and so forth. But what it tells me is that Cain and his offspring, his descendants, uh, there's no reason to believe that they were god followers in fact they had gone out and built another city and they were getting into all kinds of things that were displeasing to god so when enosh comes along about that time in history i take it to mean that the part that weren't prone to be evil recognized yes we have a creator god and that god is Jehovah or Yahweh. Um, And back then, I see the distinction, the lines being drawn. We have this ungodly group that led up to the the flood, but we also see a godly line, and that godly line recognized the the existence of God, the the, the nature of this benevolent creator God, 
and started to look to him for their needs rather than devise their own solutions. That's what occurred to me. I think mine kind of went a little bit like that, but a little bit off of that. Um, one of the things I thought about is how many people, how many, you know, births were there between uh, Seth and Enosh and how many people. So kind of like what you said, there was there was the uh, the, the, the line of Cain and and all of a sudden here was the line of Seth. And um, perhaps it was that, you know, even Cain, when he killed um, Abel, God even came and talked to Cain individually. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is a point in history where God had not personally come and talked to people, so people started calling on the name of the Lord, and I think it can go along with what you just said as well. So maybe it's a combination of both. I, I don't know that I've ever really thought a whole lot about that before, honestly. And you know, Pete, to, to add to that, I really hadn't either. <clears throat> So I did what I always do when I look into something that I don't quite understand, and that's to start looking at the definition or what maybe the word call means in maybe that context. And what I found that it means is not only to call, but one of the things that I loved that I, when I looked it up was that it meant to cry or to shout out. Um, so when, when people are, are calling on the Lord – you know, maybe they're crying out to him or calling out to him. You know, um, another another word that was uh, used was appeal um, to make a serious or an urgent request. Um, so, you know, that helps bring a little bit of perspective to me is when I look at that, you know, um, based on the question, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? That for me was, you know, I encourage anybody who isn't studied in the Bible that when you see something like that, that you pull the dictionary or biblical dictionary out and see what that word may have meant at that time. And then that way you can understand what that it may have meant. So, One of, one of the things that I had done, too, was um, I hadn't looked into what it meant to, to call, which I, I agree with Steve. That, In effect, that's a prayer. That's calling, asking the Creator for help. But I was looking at um, the word Lord because you hear the word Lord all over the place, and it's different in the New Testament than it is in the Old Testament. So when we talk about the Lord in the New Testament, the uh, I looked. I'm no expert on this, believe me. But I looked at the Greek uh, interlinear, and the Greek translation of the word used as Lord is called Kyrios and it means Lord or Master, and that's a little different than the one in the Old Testament. A lot of translations will put that in all caps, and what it is is Yahweh. It's the Jehovah. It's the triune Godhead. And so, um, and of course, Jesus is a, is a part of that. So I wanted to make sure uh, what the distinction might be between the words Lord in the Old Testament, where the inter- interlinear actually translates Hebrew, and I didn't have a Septuagint to translate or look to, but in the New Testament, it was Greek and Kyrios, uh, which was translated. But what it meant to me was, um, just like in every person, like in Romans 1, it it talks about 
men are without excuse when they look at creation and say, hey, there has to be a, a God. Uh, I don't know whether this was as a result of testimony of Adam and Eve. I, I looked up the first use of the word Lord, too, capital L-O-R-D, and it turns out Genesis 4.1 in connection with the birth of Cain, and Eve used the term, and it says, uh, Genesis 4.1 says, And the man knew Eve his wife, and she conceiveth and beareth Cain, and saith, quote, I have gotten a man by Jehovah. Now that's Young's literal translation. So you got to believe that Seth heard the term from his parents and that um, mankind in general about that time when they needed to call out to the divine for help would direct toward this Jehovah that they learned from their parents, apparently. That's interesting then. We've got the first prayer being uh, directed toward God. The, the faithful line of Seth, as you put it, uh, asking for help, asking God for help. Let's go then to Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, where we have an example of people not praying correctly. These are the words of Jesus as recorded by Matthew, and he says, But when you pray, go into your room, Close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. He will what? Reward you. Reward you. Wow. How does God reward us when we go into our room or, or into a private place and pray to him? What, what does that reward look like, I wonder? I've often questioned what this means now i'm not i'm not questioning that it's the truth i'm questioned what does it mean just kind of like we, what you said what does the reward mean does is it simply a reward that he hears us is it simply a reward that he listens to us i mean this kind of almost goes against the grain here of you know, sometimes our theology gets in the way of what the Bible says. You know what I mean? I mean, we, we try to come up with a theology, and then we come up with a verse such as this that almost goes against against the theology that I've developed. Oh, my goodness, there have been a lot better theologians than me throughout the years and throughout the centuries, and I have to defer to what Jesus said. Now, in my understanding of theology, it's all about grace. It's not about... If I do the right thing, then Jesus is going to respond. It's no, it's it, I can't do the right thing, and it's only that Jesus living through me. But yet here is Jesus himself saying that we'll be rewarded. And it's one of those passages that almost grates against the grain with me because I try to bring those two things into, what's the word I'm looking for, into balance, and, and it's hard to do. Well, let me back up real quick and contrast that with the reward that Jesus said other people received when they pray. He's talking about people who go out and they pray um, in a public area and they try and be eloquent and uh, gain the attention of others and have other people look at them and um, see how pious they are. And Jesus said, they have their reward. They've gotten the attention that they wanted they're not going to get anything else. But you, when you go and you pray privately, will be rewarded. 
And I think that's kind of like what it goes along with that I was saying earlier, that perhaps the reward is simply that God hears us. Because the audience in the other part is they have their reward. They got the recognition they wanted from all those people. My reward, if I go into my closet and pray, is that God's going to hear me. Okay. Also, you know, along the same lines is, is, as you said, the religious elites, if you will, back in that day, they got their reward immediately. Um, I never looked at it the way you just explained it, Pete. Um, I always looked at it my, was that my reward would end up in heaven at some point. And, but I like what you just explained is that, that God will hear us and not turn a, a deaf ear to what we have to, to say or, or what we're asking of him. When I considered uh, Steve's question, how will God reward us, I pondered that long and hard, and, and it came up kind of blank and empty, and so I did what Mick usually does, is go out and search for second and third opinions from Bible commentaries, and they were all over the place. Some people thought, well, your reward comes to you, you won't know exactly what it is, but it'll come to you without hesitation. It'll come to you immediately. And then another opinion was that your reward is is on the day of judgment when you're uh, judged according to the the good and the bad that, that you've done. You know, even Christians have that forum. Um, so I, I came up kind of blank. And then I was wondering, too, if, if I'm allowed to draw the inference. It does not say if you don't do this, God won't reward you. It says he'll see what you do uh, in secret and reward you. The, the question is, if you're not doing it in secret, can you logically jump to God won't reward you? So I don't know. So many things depend in the area of prayer depend upon motive and sincerity and purity before before God. I just have to uh, be kind of like my mother, who I th- thought was uh, very innocent and, and naive when it came to things like this. But I envy her. She read things. She accepted that she didn't question anything. So when it says, uh, if you go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father, your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And that's good enough for me. And I don't know when or how. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of pleading ignorance on that one. I'm interested to see where this is going to go. But right now, we really do need to break for a commercial. And we're back talking about prayer here on Reconciling Grace. And Steve, you've been the one kind of leading the discussion today. So I'm just going to throw it right back to you. Okay. We've been talking about, uh, most recently, how does God reward us when we pray? Uh, going off that Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, um, referenced by Jesus. And I think we've all had um, good thoughts on that. I'm wondering if the reward that God gives us is in our relationship with Him. If we are sincerely communicating with Him, He is... Uh, communicating with our spirit as well. We're not out there uh, making a public demonstration of ourselves uh, to get attention from other people, but we are uh, 
uh, allowing God to work in our spirits as we communicate with Him, and perhaps the spiritual growth that we experience just from our prayer life is that reward. And I, w- I will have to add into that 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 since my prayer life has has developed over the years, the deeper that I gain, um, the deeper that I go with Him in my prayer, and the more sincerity that I have in my heart, the more opportunities that He's opened up for me. Um, and to go back to the question of public prayer, I had the question I have asked to me quite often is, um, based on this scripture, um, what what does it look like to God when we are praying in a restaurant or when we're out to eat? Um, how, how, how would that look? You know, one of the things that I like to think about when it comes to prayer, when it comes to a lot of these questions that we ask ourselves is so often I think Christians in general want to have a one-size-fits-all answer. But, Steve, you talked about the Holy Spirit talking to us. That prayer Mm -hmm. isn't just a one-way street. The Holy Spirit talks to us. And, Rich, I think that the thing that you brought up about praying in a restaurant can be a perfect example of there's not always one right way to do it. You know, what if, heaven forbid, we as Christians, let the Holy Spirit guide us in this circumstance right here, right now, and then the next time we're in a similar circumstance, let the Holy Spirit guide us in that circumstance right then. It might be a totally different situation because God might know who the people are sitting next to us in one place on one day and who the people are with us or next to us on another day. And the bottom line is we want to glorify God in our prayers and in our actions. And I don't know that it's wrong to pray publicly, but if God says, don't do it, then don't do it. You know, one thing, I was convicted of something a long, long time ago in my, in my spirit. I was a very young Christian at the time, and I was at a concert of by Don Francisco. And I w- it was in a gymnasium, I think of a high school, and all the people were on the floor on, in chairs, but I just happened to be up in the bleachers. There weren't a lot of people around me, and I was a young Christian, and I was standing there, and I was raising my hands, and all of a sudden it was as though the Holy Spirit just said to me, put your hands down. You're raising your hands so that other people will see what you're doing. And from that time on in my life, I have found it very difficult to raise my hands in church or something like that, unless I happen to be so into the worship that I don't even realize it, you will almost never see me raise my hands in church because of that. Now, does that mean that the people who raise their hands are wrong? Absolutely not. But in that case, in my life, that was something that God said to me, you're not doing this to honor me. You're trying to call attention to yourself which is kind of what God was talking about when he talked to the, about the Pharisees praying in public. Well, I remember a scripture, and I can't quote it. I'm a concept person, but I haven't learned things verbatim. But you'll remember the scripture that says, let your light so shine before men that um, words to the effect that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now that's a Mick Wells paraphrase. 
Sounds pretty close to me. But when you consider that vis-a-vis, you know, the issue of praying in public, I guess it all drives back to your motive. If that's a natural part of who I am and I'm sincere, um, I'm not afraid to shine my light before men. There's another scripture where it says, uh, if you're ashamed of me uh, before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. And I want to make sure that I want to give glory when and where glory is due. Interesting. So we're talking about uh, times when it's appropriate to pray. Now we're talking about right motives in prayer. I'm wondering, is there a time when we shouldn't pray? And I'm going to go ahead and go to Mick. Uh, if you'd read your verse from Hebrews. Yes, this is from um, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. I'm going to read from the NIV. It says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Is there ever a time when we as Christians should not approach God's throne with confidence? My thoughts on that, Steve, were that I think from a human standpoint, some of us may feel ashamed to go back to God. He's, it should be an instinct, instinct for Christians to run to God when they've got a problem, when they've got an issue. If there's a wedge created between us and God, we don't run away from God, even though we may be ashamed of what we did uh, and hesitant to take it to the throne. But I, th- I think going to God would be uh, our first step in this. And then I, I, I balance that with the scripture that, that tells us uh, pretty broadly, pray without ceasing. So I would say that there's offhand, it doesn't occur to me there's a time when I would not or should not uh, approach the throne. Okay, other thoughts? To me, uh, I think I know where Mick's coming from on that because one of the first things that I thought about was, we've talked about this in a previous session, is uh, praying, for instance, if you haven't forgiven somebody else. You know, how can we pray to be forgiven if we haven't forgiven somebody else? Um, if I'm harboring that kind of unforgiveness in my heart, I don't think we shouldn't go to God for that because we should, as Mick said, because that's the kind of thing that God can change in our hearts. But I don't know that I'm confident going to God if I'm harboring that unforgiveness until I get that taken care of. So I don't know that I have that confidence until that unforgiveness is taken care of. And first of all, I have to have that taken care of between me and God and then between me and whoever I'm not forgiving. And then I can have that confidence. I related a lot too um, for me before I became a Christian, uh, either one, not going to my grandparents' house or two, not wanting to go to church because I wasn't confident. Um, I was afraid that uh, of what they may think or how they may feel. Um, I know God would never feel that way now, but then I didn't take anything to God. I wasn't confident because, you know, as you guys have said, it's it's when you don't have that that pure heart, or if you're uh, if you've got a lot of sin in your life, 
that really creates a lot of unconfidence, if if you will. I mean, it's it's so yeah. I just it just made me think when these guys were talking that I remember times when I was a teenager that I wouldn't go see my grandparents because they're they're Christians, and I was like, oh, I don't want to go see them because not because they wouldn't love me, but because I just felt so much conviction. Mm-hmm. And uh, so so that's that's kind of what I thought about. And then on top of that, with church, the first thing that came to mind, unfortunately. Well, so I don't want to go there because they're going to judge me. And that's the last thing that I want to feel. So the beautiful thing about God is, is when we take things to him, we should never approach him with unconf- not being confident, but approach him and knowing that he's going to take us as we are and not have any hesitation there if we come to him with that pure or if that willingness to seek him. Um, and not only in the, the bad times, but the good times. We should always go to him if, if we're not asking for help, but we're also asking or just giving him thanks for, for what he's blessed us with in his life. I hope that this doesn't go um, totally off topic, but I, I think it's so important, too, because so often I think that people tend to equate, I've done something wrong with sin and with God and our relationship Whereas, you know, we have all fallen short. We have probably all, not too long ago, probably done something that we may even have known God didn't want us to do. But I like to compare it to the fact that we're not cut off from God because we do a wrong thing. We have to remember that we are God's children. We are in a relationship with him. most of us here are parents. I know, I think most of us are. Steve, you're going to have to, you know, believe us on this one. I know you're not a parent yet, but we wouldn't kick our children out of the house or out of our families simply because they did something wrong. Now, were they doing something wrong, something we didn't want them to do affect the relationship? Absolutely. But they'd still be part of the family. And I think that there are some people who have that non-confidence because they think, oh, I did something wrong. God's not going to love me, or I'm not going to be accepted. And it goes back to what you said, Mick, about if there's that wedge between us and God, we don't run away from God. We need to go running to him all that much more quickly. I think uh, there's also a time to pause. You know, we talk about approaching the throne. We are approaching the king. And so we are supposed to have a certain fear of the Lord. So if we can just take a brief pause, not a long pause, not running from God, but a brief pause, collect our thoughts, check our attitude before we approach the king, and make sure that we're doing so respectfully. Make sure that we are humbling ourselves, um, not just going to him with, you know, okay, God, this is my list of wants. But respecting him as the king, as our father, yes, but also as the king. That's important because it's a dual thing. I've liked to use the example of if you have a king or a president of the United States who has children, that person's children have a special relationship with their parent. At the same time, that parent is still the king or the president, or I could say queen, maybe queen of England, whatever it might be. 
And this has been a great conversation, guys. But the clock is telling me that we are running out of time. It's one of those things that we are um, constricted by radio times. And that's one of the reasons why I hope that we're going to be able to continue these discussions week after week, because we might pick up on this at another time. Steve, I want to thank you for being the person who brought out the questions today. I should say that that's Steve Wilson. And our other panelists today have been Mick Wells, Rich Harmon, and I'm Pete Vecchi. Lord willing, we'll see you back with us next time on Reconciling Grace. This has been Reconciling Grace. Join us again next time as our panel discusses biblical truths centered around the reconciling grace of Jesus Christ.